a rising power determined to achieve self-sufficiency by any means necessary. A confused America flailing about with export controls. No, we are not talking about contemporary U.S.-China relations today on China Talk, but rather taking it back to the run-up to World War II in the Pacific. We'll be discussing Michael Barnhart's 1987 classic, Japan Prepares for Total War, The Search for Economic Security, 1919-1940 run. The first of a series of shows I hope to do about books that weren't published in the past year or two. I'm Jordan Snyder. Co-hosting today with me is Tanner Greer of the blog Scholar Stage. Michael, welcome to China Talk. Thank you. Let's start off with sort of what was in the policymaking air in Tokyo in the, the 20s and 30s. What was driving this, this vision for self-reliance and economic security? Uh, let me give you some general background on how uh, decision-making worked uh, in Imperial Japan and then address your question as to what's going on in the 1920s and 1930s. So first, uh, the, the general outlook. The, the Meiji Constitution, that is the constitution that the new Japanese elites drew up after they overthrew the old feudal Tokugawa regime, was very firm in stipulating that responsibility for the defense of the nation and empire rested with the emperor. But of course, the emperor was a figurehead. Uh, what that really meant was that national defense policy for Japan rested in the hands of the imperial army and imperial navy. There was no civilian oversight. Uh, whoever was prime minister had no say whatsoever uh, in the defense policies that Japan pursued. So if you want to talk about the making of Japanese national defense policy in the 1920s and 30s, what you're really talking about is what the Imperial Army and Navy want to do in the 1920s and 30s. And that's where things get interesting. Um, my particular study focused mainly on the Army because I think, and I thought, the Army raised more interesting questions uh, for Japanese national defense policy, and it did so for a pretty straightforward reason. Uh, when Japan overthrew the feudal regime and created de novo, a modern one, uh, it very deliberately sent missions all around the world to study alternate forms of government uh, and determine which ones were best suited, really copied, uh, for Japan's purposes. So, for example, uh, the Navy... Uh, took Britain as the model because in the 1880s, the, the British Navy was top of the hill. The army, though, uh, took Germany for its model uh, because it concluded as a result of the, the Franco-Prussian War that had resulted in the formation of Germany, that Germany had pound for pound, rifle for, uh, for rifle, uh, the best military in the world. So the Imperial Army copies the German Army as its organizational and aspirational model. Well, okay, that's great. Except Germany loses the First World War. Oops, did we copy the wrong model? Uh, and that becomes something of an obsession uh, for the Imperial Japanese Army uh, during, but especially after, uh, the First World War. And they come to a very alarming conclusion uh, and reassuring at the same time. It's it's reassuring in that the Japanese army studies find that, yep, uh, pound for pound, rifle for rifle, soldier for soldier, tank for tank, the German army was the best in the First World War. So, okay, we copied the right model. But Germany lost the First World War because of things that were beyond the control of the army itself. Uh, the German war economy, a modern industrial economy, was dependent upon too many materials that it had to import that the British Navy would not permit it to import. So 
it was really the German economy that lost the war. It was the German lack of self-sufficiency that lost the war. And that was bad news for Japan because, if anything, Japan, after the First World War, is even more vulnerable to economic cutoffs than Germany had been before the First World War. So, logical solution, so far as the Imperial Army is concerned. Japan has got to become self-sufficient, and that means self-sufficient in two regards. One, easy to solve. One, hard to solve. Easy to solve. Japan's got to become a modern industrial economy, which it was not in 1920. Chief Japanese export in 1920 is silk. Salmon is second. Fish. So, the Imperial Army says, okay, we've got to industrialize. And if we have to industrialize, and if the private sector won't do it, uh, we'll lead the way. But that's, that's within the power, the constitutional power of the Imperial Army. The second problem, though, for self-sufficiency is the resources. Here's a country that imports 90% of its petroleum, uh, overwhelmingly from the United States. And at least for the Japanese Navy, the top number one enemy is the United States. Well, uh, these th two things don't go together. How is Japan going to become self-sufficient in oil or in iron ore or quartz, optical quality quartz, or any of a number of uh, hundreds of, of resources? And the answer there really is territorial expansion. Uh, we've got to expand the Japanese empire to include ready access to all of these materials. And that's what the Imperial Army sets out to do throughout the 1920s and 30s, particularly in China and potentially against the Soviet Union. Um, the Navy that we can talk about a little later has very different plans and ideas, and that's going to lead to a real problem for Japan when the Army and Navy can't agree on what defense policy ought to be. Let's contrast this vision of precariousness with the way the U.S., particularly once we get into Cordell, Cordell Hull and the uh, uh, FDR administration, kind of conceptualize like what international trade and uh, sort of global inter interdependency can do, because it's a very different vision from the uh, from the focus on sort of autarky and self-reliance that um, uh, uh, Japan had at this time. You have a great quote from from Cordell Hall saying, if we could get a freer flow of trade, freer in the sense of fewer discriminations and obstructions, so that one country would not be deadly jealous of another and the living standards of all countries might rise, thereby eliminating the economic dissatisfaction that breeds war, we might have a reasonable chance for lasting peace. Uh, the, the sort of echoes to 1970s to U.S.-China policy circa 2017 uh, should be uh, resonant to any uh, longtime China Talk listener. Yeah, it's not only different, it's actually the opposite. Uh, so far as the Americans are concerned, and by Americans, I, I really mean Americans across the board, not just Roosevelt and Hall and the Democrats. Uh, the idea is that free trade's the way to go. Uh, the more international economic dependence there is, uh, the better that is for world peace. Uh, and the Americans also make another interesting connection to them. Uh, national attempts to become self-sufficient are inherently anti-democratic. That is, the, the more you try to impose self-sufficiency on a anti-capitalist too, I guess I could say, the more you try to impose self-sufficiency on an economy, the, the less democratic, the less free market you can afford to be. So for the Americans, what Japan and for that matter, Nazi Germany are trying to do uh, is, is challenge not just the existing order of the world. They're challenging the fundamental formulas for peace that the Americans thought they had discovered 
in the aftermath of the First World War. So yeah, different different approach. Uh, let's let's come back to sort of invading invading China. Um, I guess the question then is, I mean, how does this lead to an invasion of China? If your goal is you need to be economically self sufficient, this seems to work at cross purposes for la- waging a giant great power war. And yet the Japanese proceed to go full steam ahead on this. So how does that, how does this happen? How does this drive yourself to lead them into this long grinding resource sucking um, campaign? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, it, 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 over the long haul, uh, invading China is exactly the wrong thing for Japan to do. It, it does burn up their resource stockpiles they've already got. It antagonizes the United States and the West generally. It's overall a stupid move. So yeah, uh, why do they do it? Uh, and there are a couple answers to that. Uh, the first one may not be so obvious, so I'll, I'll start with it. Uh, to the Imperial Army in particular, uh, they want to create, remember, this this self-sufficient economy with the army in the lead. And there are lots of domestic obstacles to do that inside Japan. Yeah, the Constitution gives them complete control over national defense policy, but it doesn't give them complete control over politics. Uh, for example, Japan has elections uh, and parliamentary parties and a parliament. Uh, during these years, and the parliament actively resists the army's efforts to uh, industrialize, especially under army control, uh, the Japanese economy. But Manchuria, that's different. If you invade Manchuria and create what really is a puppet state uh, in Manchuria, that's a state that's under the army's direct control, no constitutional constraints. And so the army sees Manchuria as a model. Here is what we're going to try out. It's a lab, too. Here's what we're going to try out to make a, a self-sufficient state uh, under military control. We're going to see what works in Manchuria. And so Manchuria really is, is a big prize uh, so far as the Imperial Army is concerned. Now, okay, that answers Manchuria maybe. But what about the rest of China, which, as you say, is eventually going to get Japan into a full-blown war that ends miserably for Japan? To answer that question, we have to introduce another variable, and, and that is the division of, of factions inside the Imperial Army. And while the situation is pretty complex, there, there are basically two factions that are contesting for control in the early 1930s. One calls itself, uh, I'll give you the English equivalents, the, the Imperial Way faction, and the other is the, the control, called the control faction, but I call it the, the total war faction. And these two factions have very different ideas about how to proceed with the protection of Japan. Uh, the Imperial Way faction, which really could be called the Banzai or Yamato Spirit uh, faction, now, these guys aren't really interested in economics. They're, they're not interested in self-sufficiency. They're not interested in, in steel and optical quality quartz and all that stuff. Give them bayonets and <laughs> give them dedicated infantrymen and they're ready to go. And, and they answer the total war by saying, look, we're never going to be the economic equivalent of the West. So why try? Let's just, just go with what we do best. Okay, there's infantrymen in there. They're bayonets. So for them, the number one enemy is, is not China. It's, it's, it's the Soviet Union. It's the war that a lot of them fought as younger officers in 1904 and 1905. And they see a, a communist Russia as an even bigger threat. Uh, than the old czarist Russia uh, had ever been. Because communist Russia, the, the Soviet Union, is it's strong, it's vigorous, it's internally organized, it's driven uh, by a coherent ideology. It's, it's a real menace uh, to the safety of Japan. So the Imperial Way faction says, look, top priority for us, we got to take the Soviets down. 
And they stipulate that 1936, that's going to be the year of decision. That's when we attack the Soviet Union. But to do that, we've got to have a safe flank. Manchuria has got to be absolutely safe. And that means that the Chinese threat to reunify Manchuria has got to be dealt with. And so it's the Imperial Way faction that says we've got to preempt the Chinese nationalists and, and make them impotent before we deal with the Soviet Union. That's, that's their effort. Total War faction is saying this is nuts. They, they basically agree with, with the logic of your question. Uh, you know, you're talking about co confronting the Chinese, the Soviets, and this kind of thing is going to lead us into a war against the America. It's just stupid. So the Total War faction tries to veto actions against both China and the Soviet Union. And this leads to a great deal of friction inside the Imperial Army. And the problem is, of course, there's no mediating authority. You know, if you've got a debate inside the American army between two factions, you've got a president, commander-in-chief, who can deal with that. In Japan, you haven't got that. So there's no way to satisfy the growing tensions between the Imperial Way faction and the Total War faction. And it eventually gets solved by outright assassination. Imperial Way guys just assassinate the head of the Total War faction. Say, take that. You know, we're going into China. And the Total War faction appeals to the emperor. There are a whole host of trials that are held where basically the perpetrators of the Imperial Way get off scot-free. But uh, the emperor sort of indicates, no, I, I really want the Total War guys in control of the army. And they get that in essence by the mid-1930s, but not completely. And that's why it's really the hotheads in the Imperial Way faction that trigger the Marco Polo Bridge incident in 1937 and the wider draining war uh, that you talk about. It's, it's really the result of, of complex politics inside the Imperial Army. It leads to a stupid war with China. Do you want to go to Soviet Union or do you have questions on the, the Army things? Yeah, let's talk about the Soviet Union. Because um, this is actually something I feel like most Westerners have no idea about. Uh, as just an example, there's this book by Michael Green called By Providence Alone. It's a big, long history of American policy through the uh, 19, I mean, from basically 1850 to now. And it views Japan and it describes this era as Japan as the revisionist power in the region. Uh, but if you were talking to a Japanese person in 1930, they would have said, no, no, that's the Soviet Union. We're just responding to what the Soviets are doing. And I think most Westerners don't even realize that was part of the geopolitical equation here. And one of the things that kind of led China to this ironic intervention in China um, was this attempt to forestall a problem with the Soviet Union. Um, so I don't know if you could speak about that and maybe about Namahan and things that go on there. Um, sure. The, the, uh, the Imperial Way guys, you know, they, they don't go away. They're not assassinated uh, after the showdown of the mid-1930s. And it'll be Imperial Way field commanders that will lead to uh, the attack on Soviet forces at Chen Kufen in 1938. And Numan Han, as you say, in 1939, I mean, they, they're still trying to deal with uh, the, the communist threat. And look, uh, they're, they're not completely on the lunatic fringe uh, in this regard. Um, there are a lot of people besides the total war officers uh, in Japan that agree that communism is the, is the number one threat. Uh, they look at Mao Zedong and they say, oh, this guy's he's fringe now. But, you know, you said that about the Bolsheviks a generation ago. And you find this, this common thread through Japanese elites, military and civilian alike, uh, that the real threat to 
the world order in the 1930s is the red threat, uh, not the fascist threat. And you get parallel thinking in both Japan and Nazi Germany that, look, you know, when, when the chips are down, uh, the West will side with us uh, because we're in the front lines against the Soviet threat. Uh, and you see that reflected in, in, well, in Hitler's rather delusional imaginings. Uh, but you also see it uh, right up to August 1945 uh, in the Japanese leadership's assumptions that the United States will cut them some slack in, in surrender terms because Japan's going to be in the front lines uh, in the struggle against the Soviet Union. So th this common theme that really runs through the 1920s, 30s, and, and even after uh, the Second World War. Yeah, communism is the, the number one threat. And that's kind of an irony, I think, that the in an attempt to forestall or defeat the Soviet Union in a war, Japan ultimately ends up on a course which leads them to a war with America. So, so, so let's start the clock at the at the Nanjing Massacre, um, which is uh, uh, maybe the first part of sort of Japan's uh, actions in China, which which resonate past um, the sort of folks who are freaking out in the State Department and sort of makes it onto national and international news, such that FDR is talking about how there is an epidemic of world lawlessness and the world needs to quarantine it somehow or another. Um, what were the what were the dynamics going on in the U.S. side looking at what was what Japan was doing uh, in this time period? Right. Um, the the quarantine uh, business and Nanjing massacre, that's that's a quintessential example of Franklin Roosevelt's touch uh, for uh, media relations long before Nanjing and long before the quarantine speech. Uh, the United States Navy didn't like Japan very much. I mean, Japan was the number one enemy budgetary and otherwise. And Roosevelt, people forget, was assistant secretary to the Navy in, in the First World War. He was very close to the Navy and felt it was part of his club. He didn't like Japan very much either. And he was always looking for ways to, to nudge American public opinion uh, into a stance that was not necessarily anti-Japanese, but a stance that would allow him to pursue more active measures against Japan. And here comes the Nanjing Massacre, uh, almost tailor-made uh, because it's it's American Christian missionaries who relay the news of this um, back to the United States. Uh, this stuff is read in, in many con American congregations throughout the land, and Roosevelt just jumps on the wave and says, yes, you know, I'm with you 100%. These Japanese guys, they're, they're almost anti-Christian, you know, uh, and we ought to to be aware that there are trouble in the world and be ready to move against them. And the quarantine address, which doesn't really fly much in Congress, but it does accomplish Roosevelt's objective of kind of setting the table uh, for future concrete measures against the Japanese. Yeah. So uh, an interesting hypothetical, uh, you, we'll, we'll talk later about whether or not all this could have been avoided, but I think one of the sort of uh, sort of first mover things is the fact that we have FDR, who was the assistant secretary of the Navy when he was like 31 years old or whatever, and had this um, had this sort of vision of Japan as a as a as a danger in his head. Do you think like with a different president, this stuff wouldn't have been, um, you, you know, the, the, the sort of actions in East Asia that Japan was taking wouldn't have you know made it uh, made it on the radar at such a high level so early? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, when Japan invades Manchuria in 1931, of course, Herbert Hoover uh, is the president. And you have uh, officials inside the U.S. Department of State uh, that are ringing alarm bells 
and saying this is a this is a challenge to the East Asian order. Uh, this is what would come to be known as appeasement. We can't let Japan get away uh, with it. Uh, they're already calling in 1931 for very harsh American economic pressure against the Japanese. And Hoover just says, forget about it. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, this would mean war with Japan. And there's nothing in the Far East uh, that is of sufficient American interest to warrant a war. So, yeah, the president makes a, a big difference. So let's let's come then to the debates that are going on in uh, the State Department and Treasury about what to do. What are the sort of equivalent of, uh, you know, the total war and imperial way factions in the uh, in, in the U.S.? Can I can I ask in addition to that? Um, I think one of the unique themes about your book compared to a lot of the other literature out there, one of the reasons why I live in D.C. and I go around waving your book at everybody I can find, um, Hill staffers, people working in administration are just out of it, because the main characters of your book are, for the most part, mid-level officials. Stanley Hornbecker, Joseph Grew, and most of the people in D.C. are never going to be a Roosevelt. They're never going to be the guy at the very top. But that's where most of the books and people who do foreign policy look at. But you kind of look at this mid-level, and I'm kind of curious, as you're explaining why, uh, who these factions were, um, how you came to like decide that, oh, this is the, the level of analysis I want to focus on. These are the people that we need to be talking about. Yeah, uh, for, for exactly the, the, the reasons that you mentioned, the, the president, uh, even when the president is paying attention, uh, and we've had presidents who have not paid attention at all in the recent past. Uh, but even when we have a very active president who's, who's paying attention to the minutiae of domestic and foreign policy, just one guy, uh, just 24 hours in the day and most presidents have to sleep. So the great majority of time, American policy, America's face to the world is not the presidents. It's, it's the mid-level bureaucrats. Uh, it's the people that, that are there, like Grew in Tokyo, for example, or Hornbeck on the uh, Far Eastern uh, desk. Their job is 100% to focus on these particular issues, and that's exactly what they're doing. And because they're doing it, uh, when the president does turn his attention to these issues and asks for recommendations, options, policies, they're in a position to shape those and say, well, okay, here are the things that we can do, and here are the things that we can't, and you go ahead and pick. But remember, once you pick, we're going to be the ones putting them in action. And that turns out to have very fateful consequences, particularly uh, for Japan in 1941. Great. So let's let's come back to the kind of different theories of the case that these bureaucrats have of, uh, of Japan uh, in the 1930s. The overwhelming consensus inside the part of the state, this does not change from 1931 to 1941, uh, is that Japan may be a giant but the giant has feet of clay. Uh, the Americans are acutely aware of exactly the same thing the Imperial Army is worried about, uh, that Japan is a long way from self-sufficiency, and it's going to be pretty easy uh, to put pressure on the Japanese, given their economic vulnerability. In fact, so easy that the prevailing judgments in state and Hornbeck leads the way in this regard, but he's by no means alone in this regard, is that the Japanese will never even risk a war against the Americans because it would be so economically catastrophic to them from the get-go. 
So that's the predominant view inside the Department of, of State. And that really shapes how American policy toward Japan uh, in 1940 and 41 turns out to be pretty inflexible. So what are the policy options that get debated over the, uh, you know, as we pass into 38, 39 and 40? Right. Well, one is simply to do nothing. Uh, and the people in the Department of State whose concern is Europe, who are worried about Nazi Germany, argue for doing exactly that. They say, look, uh, kind of too bad if China gets conquered. You know, sort of a shame if Japan creates an empire in East Asia, but that's not going to endanger the national security of the United States, not the survival of the United States. But a Nazi Germany victory in Europe, yeah, uh, that's something that we really have to worry about. Uh, combined resources of Europe, we're looking at the conquest, physical conquest of the United States. So to the Europeanists in the State Department, they say, leave the Japanese alone. They're, they're inconsequential. They're not worth uh, risking anything uh, about. But of course, the Far Eastern specialists, they didn't call them East Asian back then, uh, they have exactly the opposite view. And they say, look, you know, if you surrender to uh, dictatorships, if you engage in appeasement in Asia, you, you weaken the case for foreign policy in Europe. So we've got to be consistent across the board. And these are the debates that really preoccupy the State Department and Roosevelt when he pays attention. Uh, to them uh, from 1938 right through Pearl Harbor. So we ended up getting an increasing series of export controls, sort of like controls on trade, um, which had increasing levels of impact on sort of constraining the Japanese economy. So, Michael, so what what did the policy end up being? What what sort of measures did um, uh, did the U.S. government put on uh, Japan as we as we go through the later half of the 1930s and 1941? Right. There's there's terrific irony in this, uh, especially given what we just talked about, the debate between the Europeanists and, and uh, Far Eastern specialists inside the Department of State, because it's the outbreak of, of war in Europe in 1939 uh, that allows the imposition of export controls in the United States. And the original idea behind those export controls was, of course, to ensure that Nazi Germany didn't get its hands on strategically important goods. And secondly, that the Western democracies, Britain and France, would have priority in getting a hold of those strategically important goods. Okay, that was the plan. But the reality, the way it worked out, is that it was Japan that was hurt the most by these export controls because Japan was less, less self-sufficient than Germany had been. You know, if the United States, to use the example I was kind of jumping on earlier, decides to ban the export of optical quality quartz. Okay, that hurts Germany a little bit, but Germany has other sources. Japan does not. Yeah, so so I love I love these these sort of like the reading these debates uh of like, you know, what level of gasoline should we sell them? Um which is like, you know, the the parallels of oh, okay, well they could get this from everywhere else, it's just a commodity are just like one to one with, you know, what level of nanometer should we allow uh should we allow Huawei to buy services from? And and hearing that uh echoed 70 uh 70 plus years later is just a is just a real treat. Yeah, and that's something that's the, the bureaucrats debate. I mean, they've got the knowledge on the ground. You know, what octane level? I mean, Roosevelt's never going to worry about that. But uh, export control in, in Treasury and state, they, they worry about that all the time. 
I did love the um uh, the sort of like weird interdependencies that the U.S. had from from Japanese imports, like that silk you were talking about. The army at one point was stressed out because they made their parachutes from Japanese silk. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's come back to the Japanese side. How are they? perceiving all of these um all of these efforts because on the one hand uh you know it wasn't like the u.s was trying to provoke war uh between the u.s and japan in the in 1930 1939 1940 yeah the, 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 the bottom line is that the japanese are and by that i mean the japanese army and navy are just shocked every time the united states imposes an export control all the way up to the final American freeze on Japanese assets at the big hammer uh, that comes down in July of 1941. Uh, the Japanese, I mean, they were, they were Pearl Harbor. You know, they just didn't see that coming. Not any step uh, of the way. And you might ask yourself, it's a fair question, well, why not? I mean, here they are, you know, attacking China. Uh, they're, they're really annoying American public opinion. Roosevelt's all, already hostile uh, to them. Why didn't they see an American readiness to, to put the screws on? Uh, and the reason they don't see that uh, is that they're already l looking to links with Nazi Germany and will sign an alliance with the Germans in September of 1940. And to them, that's their insurance policy against American pressure. Yeah. The Americans, you know, they have to be crazy to consider a simultaneous war against both Germany and Japan. They'll never undertake that because they'll never undertake that. They'll never risk forcing our hand by the measures of economic pressure that, in fact, the Americans do impose. And it's kind of funny that the Japanese almost, I mean, the Americans almost have the same view. The, the Japanese would be crazy if they try to fight us while they're fighting this war in China. Yet it happens. Yeah, that's kind of the tragedy of the whole thing. Let's talk about the sort of like northward versus southward debate within uh, within Japan. How did um, American actions end up tipping the um, the scale on whether to uh, invade uh, Southeast Asia or take on uh, the Soviet Union for a second round? Yeah, uh, the American actions are critical uh, in this debate. Um, as you might recall, there's there's no mechanism in Japan for resolving disputes between the Japanese Army and the Japanese Navy. And in 1940, 1941, those disputes are acute. Um, in 1940, for example, uh, the Army and Navy are at loggerheads over northward versus southward advance. And 1941, the same debate uh, occurs again uh, with the Army saying, in the aftermath of Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union, the army saying, now's the time to strike. The Soviets are weak. We can finally deal with the communist uh, menace. All we have to do is attack north. And the Navy, which has been starved of resources because the war in China is basically a land war. China has no Navy uh, to, to speak of. Now, the Imperial Navy is worried that any attack on the Soviet Union is going to mean, you know, another war where the Navy gets shut out. And so the Navy raises the argument, oh, no, you can't do that because if you attack the Soviet Union, the West is going to get involved. And if the West gets involved, you're going to need a Navy uh, to protect yourself. And this debate is intractable. There's no president or prime minister or commander-in-chief to, to solve it until uh, Roosevelt solves it. Roosevelt, by allowing the asset freeze to take place, 
and ending the export of oil to Japan allows the Imperial Navy to go to the Imperial Army and say, look, even if you attack the Soviet Union, you're going to run out of gas, literally, before you can do much damage. So the Navy and Army strike a deal. Okay, we'll attack south, we'll conquer the the oil-rich Dutch East Indies, and once we've done that, then... In 1942, we'll consider an attack on the Soviet Union. But the first thing will be the attack south. And as the Navy makes perfectly clear to the Army, that means war not just against France and Holland, France because of Indochina, Holland because of the Dutch East Indies. It also means war against Britain and the United States. And if it's war against Britain and the United States, then the Navy's got to get the bulk of the budget and the resources for 1941. I love the like toxic masculinity undercurrent of the Navy debate where they can't say no to war because even if they think they're going to lose, it's like, well, what's the point of even having a Navy if you're not like up to the challenge? And um, by saying, hey, guys, like we want resources, like we want to build our ships, but like we actually don't think we should we should join this like World War conflagration. Then, um, you know, that means you're not like a true man uh, willing to sort of like stand up for your for your nation and fight for the emperor. Yeah, the army's heard all this before and yet they keep coming back to the Navy and, and saying, you know, uh, unless you really are prepared to fight the United States, you know, you're, you're just an expensive toy. And that's that's exactly the phrase they use. And you can imagine the reaction of the naval officers in the room uh, where, you know, swords are about to be drawn uh, in uh, a response. But the Army's logic was impeccable. You know, why indeed fund the Navy if, you know, you're you're never going to face the prospect of war against the Americans? So um, the hypothetical uh, Army wins that argument, ends up invading the USSR in uh 1941 with the germans like does the world end up in a worse place um than if we if we end up getting pearl harbor because like the soviet union falling and totally disintegrating you know december 1941 also sounds like a pretty awful uh uh outcome that was roosevelt's judgment and it's it's pretty clear that he was very consciously making that uh judgment uh he was willing to keep Japan at arm's length as long as he could, uh, but he could not, and it's this is a constant of his global strategy through 1941. Roosevelt could not allow the Soviet Union to collapse. Uh, that was tantamount to a German victory in Europe, and as we talked about earlier, that was an unacceptable outcome for the United States. So even if the oil, the asset freeze and oil cutoff meant that Japan would attack the South. And Roosevelt greatly feared the Japanese would attack only French, Dutch, and British possessions. He really worried. You know, my God, I hope they attack the Philippines, but I'm not sure that they'll oblige me in that. And Roosevelt had made a commitment to Churchill saying, look, if if the Japanese don't attack the Philippines and just attack the European colonies, I'm still going to ask Congress for a declaration of war, but I can't promise that I'm going to deliver a declaration of war. I don't know if I have the votes for that. But it was certainly a risk that Roosevelt was willing to run and felt he had to run in order to keep the Soviet Union in the war. In the book, you kind of distinguish, I'd say, three factions on the Japanese side. You have your Navy, you have your Army, and then you have the planning board who wants to have an economy that can be a total war economy sometime in the future instead of fighting moment. And these three are just fighting each other all the time. But you have this really interesting structure of your book 
where you alternate between chapters where you describe these debates that are happening in Japan and these chapters where you then go to the United States and assess the debates that are happening there. So you get this dynamic where you get to see here's what the Japanese are thinking and here's what the Americans think the Japanese are thinking. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this. How well did the Americans understand these factions and their debates the Japanese are having and contribute to their policy? The Americans don't have a very good appreciation of the decision-making process in Japan. Um, I'd go so far as to say the Americans don't read the Japanese constitution. I mean, they don't know there's no central mediating authority. Ambassador Gru is constantly reporting back, at least until 1940, that there are powerful Japanese civilian moderates that will return Japan to a policy of a stance of friendship with the United States. Uh, and Rue is widely believed for a long time, and that's, that's simply a misreading of what Japan was all about in the 1920s and 1930s. However, once you get closer to Pearl, once you get into 1940 and 1941, uh, once you get magic uh, working, uh, which, is not a, which is not magical, I mean, the Americans can read only 3 to 5% of Japanese code, but that does include Japanese diplomatic traffic, and that's, that's kind of important. Uh, to understand some of the debates that are going on, uh, the Americans begin to get a good appreciation of, on a broad scale, of what's going on in Japan. Roosevelt himself will comment in the summer of 1941 that the Japanese, and I'll use Roosevelt's word, were having a knockdown, dragout fight over amongst themselves over whether to go north or south. Roosevelt knew that and appreciated it when he made the decision to freeze, well, to authorize the freeze of Japanese assets. So he might not have had perfect knowledge. He certainly didn't. But he did have an appreciation of the overall stance of Japan, that Japan was on the edge. We're going to go north or we're going to go south. He might not have been able to tie that to the, the particular dynamics of the Imperial Army and Navy, but he knew the broad circumstances of the debate, and he knew that he had a way to affect those circumstances, and he took it. Um one of the interesting dynamics that you highlight with with getting these sort of magic uh, readouts was this uh, overconfidence that uh, the U.S. ended up developing in some of its opinions. How did that end up playing out ultimately, uh, tragically in the in the in the final few months of the uh, uh, in the lead up to Pearl Harbor? Yeah, the the problem with the intelligence is you know it's it's got to be received. Yeah, you know, some human brain has to receive this intelligence and then interpret it. So you can have, you know, the best analysts in the world, whether it's the contemporary CIA or, or anything else, uh, feeding really excellent information uh, to the president or secretary of state or national security advisor. And it doesn't make a damn bit of difference uh, if the, the receiving brain doesn't know what to do uh, with it. And in the case of magic and the case of American policy towards Japan, uh, what happens is we, we don't have, you know, stupid people in the White House. Roosevelt was dumb, uh, whatever else uh, uh, he was. Uh, we don't have stupid people in the cabinet uh, or experts from Hornbeck to Gru in, in the Department of State. But what happens is the magic information seems to confirm their existing assumptions about the Japanese. Uh, the Japanese are weak. Uh, that the Japanese will not buck the United States. And, and they say, you know, that's how they read magic. Uh, they, you know, Japan wouldn't dare. Uh, that's how they see it. Uh, and that's exactly why Roosevelt says, well, I really hope the Japanese attack the Philippines, but I'm not sure that they will. 
Yeah. So in your uh, book, you say the following. Um, if the U.S. government had comprehended the depth of inter-service differences in Japan throughout 1941, it might have been able to devise a strategy, such as the carefully administered and selective asset freeze originally intended, that would have aggravated those differences and led to paralysis within the Japanese government instead of, say, leading to Pearl Harbor. I'm wondering if you could, like, talk a little bit about that counterfactual. Like, like what world does this look like where the Americans understand better the Japanese and lead to a different outcome? Right. Um, you might recall that, that Roosevelt does not want Japan to attack the Soviet Union. But in a perfect world, they don't attack South either um, because Roosevelt's worried about what happens to Churchill if, if Singapore uh, falls. Singapore falls, Churchill falls, that would be bad. So, you know, if knowledge had been better, if appreciation had been deeper, it may have been, I'm not saying it would have been, but it may have been possible to have selectively unfreeze Japanese assets in the United States, which is some evidence, actually a good deal of evidence, that that's what Roosevelt intended all along. But that's not what happens uh, with the Treasury and state officials that are overseeing uh, the freeze but that you'd selectively unfreeze these assets and, and dribble out. I think Roosevelt's phrase was uh, just enough to let them have a little rice. Uh, dribble out so that Japan was, would not be driven to crisis uh, so that, uh, to put it bluntly, the Imperial Ar Navy couldn't go to the Imperial Army and say, well, you're not going to be able to attack the Soviet Union because the, the, you're, you're going to run out of gas. Uh, somehow fine-tune it, and it would have been pretty fine-tuning, uh, that neither the army nor the navy would have gotten the consent of the other for a northward or southward advance. That that could have been done, but I think it would have required uh, exquisite balance on the part of the United States. I guess one of the things I often think about when I read this book is to what extent there are general lessons that can be taken from it versus things that are just so specific to, to this exact historical circumstance. Today, we once again find ourselves trying to understand a fairly opaque authoritarian regime. And people say things like Joseph Grew did. Oh, there's moderates. And we got to make sure the moderates get in power. And I often think, well, that's the, I'm sure there are factions. I'm sure it's not monolith. But it's probably not just a, a, a sliding scale of pro-U.S., anti-U.S., the way that Grew thought in the uh, 30s and some people think today. So I wonder if there's any thoughts you have on general lessons to be taken from how you understand and interact with a kind of opaque, hard to understand authoritarian trending system, you know, from your historical study. Yeah. You need as much information as you can get. You know, you need to send U.S. officials to the Beijing Olympics, for example. You know, you want as many trained American professionals uh, gathering information intelligence, call it what you will, uh, in China. They don't have to be government officials. They can be journalists. They can be private citizens, uh, but just ears to the ground to figure out uh, how does it does decisions get made in the People's Republic? Uh, who are the key lovers? Who do you need to know? Uh, especially at the mid-level. Uh, and uh, although it's it's not my field and, and really not my concern uh, very much uh, these days, the luxuries of being retired, um, I think that, you know, if I were a czar put in charge with this, I mean, the first priority would be let's let's get information and figure out how decisions uh, get made inside China. Because if you don't know that, um, you risk running 
the same problems that the Americans ran into in their signaling of Japan. Which is why all the funders out there listening should reach out to uh, make the China Talk open source CCP class a thing. I want to close with your uh, most recent book, which came out the summer of this year. Um, Can you beat Churchill teaching history through simulations? Uh, What's so magical about teaching uh, uh, doing simulations in classrooms? For me, the the essence of of teaching is is really learning. What do you want your students to learn? And way too often uh, in American education and not just American, but but especially American education. What you want your students to learn are, are rote answers to exam questions. And I think that leads to, to very poor educational uh, results. What you really want to do is teach critical thinking. I know that's a buzzword. I mean, I know, you know everybody says how great critical thinking is and so forth. But I think the way you teach critical thinking is to present the students with problems that they have to actively solve themselves in class. And the way you do that is not by lecturing to them or even giving them essay assignments. It's by putting them in the middle of, of games, of things like simulations and saying, well, here's your situation. Here's your role. Here's your problem. Now you talk with your classmates and figure out how to solve it. So Tanner, um, what is your uh, dream modern Chinese history simulation to lead or uh, be a part of? Um, that's a hard question. I've I've seen a simulation done of that book, 1587, um, A Year of the Ming Dynasty, which looks fantastic. If I was to do one for a little bit more in the future, um, I think it might be kind of fun to do something like the uh, Fujian incident where Mao Zedong and Jiang Kai-shek are, you know, stuck together in C- like near Xi'an. And I think that would be a kind of... Uh, a fun thing to try and do. If you're Zhang, if you're Zhang Kai-shek, do you, you know, how do you balance Japan, the warlords, the communists? He doesn't have any good choices. And so I think that's the best simulations is when no one has good choices. So you can kind of see that and not just have the historian, you know, in the background saying, oh, well, they should have done this. It's a lot harder when you face those choices yourself. And he's, I think, the perfect example of somebody who just has crappy choices. And it'd be fun to play that game. Tanner, I, I literally put the Sion incident as my one in the Google Doc. I can't believe you stole my answer. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't see that in the doc. What a dirtbag. Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess. I guess uh, now that my first choice is taken, I think the other one I would. Um, I would go with was Death of Mao, and you know, you've got like uh, Gang of Four. You got Dung. Uh, and you got just all these like machinations, you got the military, you got the students, lots of, um, uh, a lot of sort of like mess and moving actors. You got the Tangshan earthquake as like a, you know, thing out of left field to sort of shake up the dynamics. Lots of, lots of juice to squeeze in that, uh, in that historical moment. Do you have simulations for like Japan 1941 following your book? There actually uh, is a, a large library of simulations at the Barnard College Reacting History Institute. And John Moser at Ashland University has uh, a simulation there of Japan 1940 uh, to 1941 that, that certainly bears investigation. All right. Well, I, have a, I literally talked to a friend yesterday. Um, who's going to teach a course, which I was trying to pitch him to do this on. So now that he's got someone who's already done the work for him, this is great. Last question, Michael. I end every show with a song. Uh, do you think there's... 
what was what was what was what was rocking in the in the to uh on the tokyo radio station circa 1936 or in the u.s uh that was sort of somewhat relevant to what we're um uh what we talked about today it is a, a tribute to my credentials as a diplomatic historian that i have no idea whatsoever uh, what was popular <laughs> on radio in, in the united states or japan in 1936 uh tanner and michael thank you so much for being a part of china talk thank you at Joe Music Today is Find Me a Pistol Shame by the Andrew Sisters. Of all the boys I've known and I've known some Until I first met you I was lonesome And when you came inside dear my heart grew light And this whole world seemed new to me You're really swell I have to admit you Deserve expressions that really fit you And so I've racked my brain hoping to explain All the things that you did to me Find me a Pistol Shame Please let me explain. Bomb me to shame means you're grand. Bomb me to shame again. I'll explain. It means you're the fairest in the land. I could say Bella, Bella, even seven bar. Each language only helps. Me tell you how grand you are. I've tried to explain how me is to shame. So kiss me and say you understand. Bomb me is to shame. You've heard it all before, but let me try to explain. Bomb me is to shame means that you're grand. Bomb me